When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter. I teach linguistics, and when called upon some other things, I'm less qualified to teach at Columbia University. I've written The Power of Babel, A Natural History of Language, Our Magnificent Bastard Tongue, The Untold History of English, and more recently, The Language Hoax, Why the World Looks the Same in Any Language. I am honored to be guest hosting Lexicon Valley for the summer, and my guest this week is Anatoly Lieberman. Professor Lieberman is an expert on, among other things, such as poetry in his native Russian, Germanic language philology, and he teaches on that matter at the University of Minnesota. Professor Lieberman has a particular specialty, however, in etymology, a subject not as well policed as you might suppose, and I learned that from two books of his. Many of you may have already savored word origins and how we know them, etymology for everyone. Etymology can be one of those subjects like why the sky is blue. Often you feel like you want to know more about it, but if it isn't described just so, the whole topic kind of wears you out after about six or seven minutes. Professor Lieberman's book is one of the rare ones on etymology that keeps you nipping along from front to back. And then if you're really up for some hardcore initiation, his analytic dictionary of English etymology will make you feel very much one of the in crowd. But mainly, you must savor his weekly etymology blog at the Oxford University Press website. But our issue today is more specific as well as perhaps more viscerally urgent. Anatoly is a vigorous and, I think, eminently sensible proponent of solving a problem we've come to accept as somehow natural, like the fact that umbrellas don't work well, when really something badly needs to be done. People often say that English is a hard language, despite that it doesn't have any meaningless genders that make tables female and so on. In the present tense, there's only a single landing for the third person singular. And English treats the subjunctive like an alcoholic uncle only allowed downstairs on carefully monitored special occasions. What they mean by hard is the spelling. Rough. Cough, through, though, bow. It is nothing less than tragic that those five words are all spelled with O-U-G-H, but they're pronounced differently. Or why are some and come written with O's? They aren't pronounced som and comb. Really, some should be written S-U-M, as it actually once was. And the only reason it isn't is because in a now forgotten writing style, a U before an M looked so much like another M that scribes started writing the U as an O just to avoid confusion. And now here we are. 
In the same way, come should be written as C-U-M, the way it used to be, although maybe there's a reason today we might be inclined to make an exception on that word. But I want to ask, Professor Lieberman, you are from St. Petersburg originally, and so I'm going to take the liberty of assuming that your first language was Russian. How did you get interested in a topic such as spelling reform in English? I don't even remember why I began to think about it. Probably in connection with my weekly blog on the website of the Oxford University Press, and it turned out that I had many allies in Great Britain, very few in this country, and there was an active society of which, believe it or not, I'm now president. That's an almost unbelievable thing that I'm the president of the International Spelling Society, whose main aim is to reform English spelling. It takes years for foreigners to learn our spelling, and it's enough to grade the hundreds of undergraduate <laughs> papers that I have looked through and read and graded to see how hard it is even for native speakers mm-hmm. to learn English spelling. It would be a tremendous benefit if at least something could be done along these lines. It's an absolutely ridiculous system, and I actually, I'm going to only do this once during the podcast. I want to read a passage that Anatoly has written about how it feels to foreign learners to master this ridiculous system. He wrote in one of his blogs, Native speakers, let us call them native spellers of English, have long since stopped worrying. School is a place where they must spend 12 rather dull years, although occasionally spiced with prom, sports, and camping out, and survive multifarious bullying. Learning to spell is also bullying, but no law exists against it, and a spell checker with its autocorrect is a nice palliative. There's no opprobrium in saying, I am a terrible speller, it even sounds coy. The only people who wonder are foreigners. With regard to English, they have neither competence nor the wonderful thing called gut feeling. Hear, hear. However, is our solution to have a phonetic system where you have one symbol for each sound. That's what I think many people would advocate. And you can see it on the page. And frankly, it looks a little peculiar to me. Perhaps we would get used to it. But is that what you would seek? There is no hope of having one sign or one symbol for every sound. But some things can be reformed easily and painlessly. But before we discuss this question further, I would like to say that people have been trying to reform English spelling actively for more than 150 years now, without practically any results, Mm -hmm. except for what little has been done in the United States when we stopped spelling honor with O-U-R, color, honor, and so on, Mm -hmm. and when the suffix I-S-E-I-Z-E has been regularized so that we don't have to think systematize. Exactly. I-S or I-Z, and that's about it. Why do you think that spelling reform was more popular before World War I? Why is it that people running around without penicillin were somehow more interested in making spelling sensible, but that within both yours and my living memories, the whole thing has qualified to most people as a kind of crank sideline? I think the reason is that in the area of social reform and social change, and changing spelling is, of course, a social change, everything depends on the will of very few active and influential people. And at the end of the 19th century, at the beginning of the 20th century, there were many people, many perhaps is a slight exaggeration, there were several people, like George Bernard Shaw and a few others, 
who were really famous, not just well-known, but really famous, who thought that spelling reform was worth their trouble, and the world listened to their voices. Then the catastrophe of the First World War happened, and everything after it with communism and fascism and another great war and millions of people killed. There were really other things to think about. So the whole thing disappeared from the public eye. And today there is no one who is so famous and so influential as to push with the reform. That is why I have a rather pessimistic view of its future. Unless some politicians decide that that is part of their agenda, mm-hmm. that may happen. <laughs> the only way that would happen is, I think, just flying by the seat of my pants, if it were tied to education. And I think one really gets a sense of how silly this system is. If you're watching a young person trying to learn how to read, and it's tragic enough to watch it happening in the book-lined home that, for example, I live in. But to imagine it going on with somebody who doesn't have that kind of reinforcement, you think with all the problems that so many people have, why should they have to deal with things like through and bow and cough and so very many spellings that make no sense at all? Yet, you seem to believe that We have to take this slowly, that it has to be something gradual. I'm not sure what you think of the end point as being, but for example, with no and knowledge, I would think that many people would say it was a no-brainer that we need to get rid of the K because there hasn't been a K for a very, very long time pronounced. But you think we should keep the no and the knowledge. Why keep things like that? Why not go whole hog? You're kind of a Hillary Clinton as opposed to a Bernie Sanders when it comes to spelling reform. Well, the whole hog is a revolutionary thing and a very dangerous one because I don't think that the public will take it. I'm very pragmatic here. Those who believe that spelling reform is a viable thing say, let us first of all get rid of such terrible words as give, have, live, and so on, with its, especially have and give, with its idiotic E at the end. That, I think, should not be done because these are very common words and people will feel very uncomfortable without the E. But there are certain things which can be destroyed without people's noticing them in foreign words, in double letters, and so on. Let us suppose if we stop distinguishing between till and until Mm -hmm. and have one L at the end, nobody's withers will be unrung, really. Nobody (laughs) will feel very unhappy about it. The difference between knock and knowledge is that K disappeared at least 500 years ago. Mm -hmm. It's an enigmatic change. Nobody really knows why these G and K disappeared in words like G-N-A-W, and knock. And spelling them is stupid. That's the mildest thing that can be said. Mm -hmm. But in knowledge, we have the word acknowledge. Mm -hmm. They are connected. Perhaps there is some sense in retaining this connection. Mm-hmm. That's the morphological principle or historical principle. When certain words are connected, mm-hmm. perhaps it's better not to sever the connection. What about a case like Daubert, doubt with the B in it, which was never pronounced in our language. It was basically jammed in there by some underoccupied person who thought that we needed to be reminded of dubitare and Latin roots like that, or the S in island when it was never island at all. Should we keep those? Island, I think, should be reformed, especially because this S was the result of someone's 
very old attempt to look the English word island like the Latin word insula, mm-hmm. because those etymologists 300 years ago believed that island is related to insula, mm-hmm. and so let it look like a related form, which is not. So this S is totally superfluous, and of course should be done away with. It should be taken and flushed down a toilet. It's interesting, there was one exception to your otherwise thoroughly accurate depiction of spelling reform's demise after roughly the progressive era, and that is that the Chicago Tribune, as you probably know, in 1934, had a temporary policy of trying to initiate spelling reform by taking a small collection. They had the same stealth operation orientation that you do, a small collection of words and spelling them in a sensible way and just hoping that the public would get used to it. One of those words was island, and it was spelled I-L-A-N-D. And you can go back into old issues of the Chicago Tribune. I'm not pretending that I do that with the physical issues or microfilm. You can now just see them online. And you can see Clue spelled C-L-E-W, Jockey, J-O-C-K-Y, often in the headlines. But, you know, it never caught on, partly because a lot of people just never got past the idea that it looked kind of goofy, whereas the island one, for me, I've always really felt that that was uh, quite the injustice. But, Anatoly, what about um, playwright, W-R-I-G-H-T? Shouldn't it be play, W-R-I-T-E? Leading question. Uh, The problem is... As you have just pointed out, that people don't like change. Mm -mm. They constantly speak about the benefits of change, but they want things to remain the same, really, (laughs) because it's more comfortable when things don't change. One thing is to theorize about change. Quite a different thing is to live through the period of change. Mm -hmm. This is how it is with right. I have never made up my mind about what to do with it, especially because we have the last name, the family name, right, right, which to my mind, should not be changed because last names, family names, should be what they are. That's a traditional thing. And that's, of course, where playwright comes from. The problem is not what to do with individual words. Those who are for reforming spelling cannot agree on many minor points, as always. First, there is a revolution, then there are dissidents. I think the most important thing is to decide whether we in general want to do something mm-hmm. to make the proverbial first step. Mm-hmm. And I wonder whether we'll ever reach that stage. Hmm. One idea you have that I like, although there's a part of me that likes the idea of perhaps just blowing it all up and starting again, because sometimes I feel like that's the only way that change can happen, if maybe even then there would be a slight retreat. But you have the idea that when we're talking about homonyms, like, for example, whole as in the whole thing, as opposed to a hole as in a hole in the ground, that there might be some benefit to keeping the silly W when we're talking about whole as in entire, as opposed to a hole in the ground, so that you don't have these lookalikes on the page. Do you still stand by that idea? When we speak, we still say whole in the same way in both cases. And in the context of our speech, everything is absolutely clear. There are only a few jokes, a few puns. There is a famous sentence, which I think was first quoted by Henry Bradley, the second editor of the Oxford English Dictionary, and then it made its way into all textbooks of English. How a professor said, 
while lecturing at Oxford. Oxford is a whole and must be looked upon as a whole, and was met with a roar of laughter. <laughs> well, he naturally meant W-H-O-L-E, and not H-O-L-E. But such cases are really insignificant. If there is no misunderstanding when we speak, why should there be some misunderstanding when we write these things? But yes, my main principle is do it slowly. If you want an analogy, I would think that we should call it something like the frog effect. You know that the temperature of a frog rises with the rise of the temperature around the animal. I do now. And if you, well, it's a famous example, of course, it's in every <laughs> textbook. And if you put a frog in a pail of cold water and warm, warm this water gradually, the frog doesn't notice the difference. So you can boil a frog without giving it any pain. I think that's what should be done to the public. First, very small things, something that will not offend anyone. Once people begin to believe that reforming spelling is a good thing, more of it. And finally, you boil the frog and nobody will notice the result. As for better or for worse, and in many ways it's worse, English, in the opinion of many, including me, not Mandarin, but English, is on its way to becoming the de facto universal language. Wouldn't it be better if we could have a spelling system that didn't simply waste so very much time, frustrate people so much, and leave them in a position where they end up being unable to help looking silly when they try to write when they're first trying to, and maybe, depending on how late they come to the language, forever, when there's really no explanation for it except, let's face it, and I've learned a lot of this from you, there is a certain kind of person who would harumph and twirl their mustache and say that history is at stake here, that if we change the spelling, then we're cutting people off from older literature and we're not respecting the fact that our spelling system, even if it's a mess, is the product of various steps and processes and traditions. And so it can be thought of as uh, basically a medieval cathedral that's all caked with the gunk of the ages as well as its original beauties. And so we really just need to keep things the way they are because there's something called tradition. And Anatoly, if I may, you in some ways are a traditionalist. There are many tossed off remarks in your blog that strike me as somebody who is definitely not for rapid change, not somebody who immediately celebrates every new thing that comes down the pike. So what about that history explanation that many people give? Well, you are quite right. I'm quite conservative when it comes to language change. It's very interesting and very inspiring to study the history of language. It's rather disgusting to be part of it. When you <laughs> hear things... Haven't you, haven't you felt that? We all have that feeling. I don't like to admit that I feel it, but I know it's what you mean. It's so interesting to study Middle English or even early modern English. Oh, Shakespeare said it this way. Shakespeare said it that way. We no longer say that. But when you hear all those things around you, you rebel, of course. No, no, you can't say so. That's illiterate English. That's bad English. That's uneducated, <laughs> and so on and so on. I know that language changes. I know that that is correct in language that everybody finds to be correct. Mm -hmm. And language will change whether we want it or not. But we educated people try to hold it back somewhat. And certain things are certainly not good. For example, we do not like people saying like after every word. 
will like teach it next semester. I like wanted to take your course, but like you see, I like could not take it because I like had more courses to take. That's a change and a social change. It is. But we don't like it because it's not good English. So yes, I'm conservative, knowing that language will change regardless of my conservative views. But spelling is stupidly conservative because our English spelling, I mean, mm-hmm. is stupidly conservative because it's the product of something that was concocted years ago, sometimes centuries ago, and these centuries mean absolutely nothing to us. Your word island is a classic example Egregious. of yeah. it, something that we don't need. People say, well, it's history, don't want to ruin history. Why should we be so interested in history? And that history is also an ambiguous term. Honor and color, which we providentially in this country do not spell with O-U-R, these are French spellings, not Latin spellings. Mm -hmm. So should we go back to Latin or to French? I would say that history should be preserved only to the extent that it's useful or reasonable. In foreign words, it's especially obvious. For example, in Italian, which is, after all, closer to Latin Mm -hmm. than our modern English, they are not afraid of writing words like communist, community, and so on with a K. Mm -hmm. And we still write it with a C. Mm -hmm. What would happen to us if the word community were spelled with a K? I think it would be a wonderful thing. (laughs) I think very little would happen to us that we have reason to fear. I might say that on on the subject of linguistic conservatism and change, I have trained myself to monkishly tolerate language change and to genuinely enjoy it. But I'm quite aware that that is not something that comes spontaneously to most people. And in fact, I'm probably not supposed to use this podcast to plug my work. But my next book, Words on the Move, is actually addressing exactly that question, how you can learn to enjoy the language change around you since it's never going to stop. And when it comes to that like, which is a very pungent little item, I actually try to demonstrate that there is a very obscure language spoken in Borneo that has a very similar particle where if we documented that, We'd think of it as subtle and interesting and prolific. Those are the sorts of mental gymnastics that I think we can try to put ourselves through. But no, community with a K would be perfectly fine. I want to ask you something that everybody always asks me, and I give different answers depending on my mood. Is English's spelling system the worst in the world? The worst that I know of. And all the languages that I know, all the European languages, have reformed their spelling. German, quite recently, Mm -hmm. not radically. This was not a great change, but you cannot imagine the amount of resistance. Exactly. The passions that raged, the speeches that were made, the (laughs) declarations by writers that they would stop writing. One would have thought that a major revolution uh, was on its way. And yet now... 20 years or 25 or 30 years later, everybody has this spelling and nobody notices these differences. A much more radical thing happened after the 1917 revolution in Russia. And those who grew up in Russia after the revolution Mm -hmm. hated the new spelling. And yet next year, the world will either rule or celebrate the revolution of 1917 in Russia. Nobody knows the old spelling, Mm -mm. and nobody 
weeps that it has gone. Even Icelandic, which is a language very few people know, I mean outside Iceland, of course, even there they reformed their spelling. Mm -hmm. And there is no more conservative language in the Germanic-speaking group than Icelandic. Mm -hmm. Even they were not afraid to put some finishing touches to their spelling. Only we are here terribly afraid that if we spell the Greek word thonic, C-H-T-H, with four letters at the beginning, two of which are not pronounced, if we, God forbid, get rid of these first two letters, we'll do something terrible to our history. (laughs) Something needs to be done. And the truth is, all it often takes is one generation not knowing what it was like before, for change to take root, and then there's no looking back. I sincerely hope that we can lay down the conditions for getting spelling reform talked about in a productive way in the near future. Professor Lieberman, thank you very much for coming on with me. I've wanted to talk to you about this for a long time, and this summer I have actually had the wherewithal to do so. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And if our conversation does something to further the cause of spelling reform, I will be overjoyed. (laughs) And me as well. We just heard from Anatoly Lieberman, who teaches Germanic language philology at the University of Minnesota, and perhaps more pertinent to our purposes today, is the president of the English Spelling Society. If you have thoughts about today's show, please write to us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Our Twitter handle is at lexiconvalley, and please subscribe to our feed in the iTunes store. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. This show was edited by Mike Volo. I'm John McWhorter, and I'll talk to you again in a couple weeks. It's embarrassing when you make a spelling mistake. It's embarrassing with a double R and a double S and a single little B after the E and the M. We make mistakes every day. It's an everyday kind of thing.